0: We had a uh, birthday party for my eldest son, Joshua, when he was three. But unfortunately, he had a little bit too much party and got sick afterwards. Several months had elapsed, and uh, on one evening, I asked Joshua uh, if he would like to have Sunny Delight for a drink. Sunny Delight, by the way, was the beverage of choice for his party and here it is almost 30 years later, and I can still hear what Josh said to me. He didn't want it, and he quoted and said, Dad, sunny delight make me sick. <laughs> sunny delight make me sick. Today, as you're turning to Revelation chapter 3, Jesus looks at this particular church, the church of the Laodiceans, and he essentially says to them, you make me Sick! What a statement uh, to make to the last of the seven churches. So as you're turning uh, to Revelation chapter 3, let me give you the background uh, to this particular book. This city lay uh, 40 to 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. Remember the church we studied last, the church that was given the open door pertaining to the kingdom. This was not only a very wealthy city for the region in which It existed, western Turkey, but in the world. In AD 60, approximately, an earthquake devastated the city. The Roman government came in and said, we will help you to rebuild. They responded, no thank you, we can handle this ourselves. Imagine if your house Uh, was destroyed by some kind of natural disaster. And you had insurance, and the insurance company goes, okay, here's the money to rebuild. And you said, oh, no, no, we don't need it. We can just do it ourselves. That's how affluent uh, they were. They were commercially prosperous. They were also renowned for producing a glossy black wool, uh, which made outer garments. Then also, they were known... Uh, around the world for their medical centers. <laughs> uh, they produced a famous eye salve uh, and sold it in tablet form. So this was a, an advanced civilization, a very wealthy group of people that lived in this particular region. Now, with that said, let me read to you Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do you not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold... I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on a throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the seven churches And our privilege to study the message that Jesus imparted to each one. Father, what pertained to one church pertained to all the churches. Because he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So today, Lord, let us hear this message that has been tried and true. It's still for us today. And I pray that we would not imitate these hardened saints. Uh, But Father, if we have areas that we need repentance concerning, that today we would repent so you would not be sick of us also. Guide us, Father, by your Spirit, who works, Lord, not only with us today, but has worked even in the past and will continue to do so. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The name uh, Laodicea is uh, derived from Laas, which means people, and Decao, which gives the idea of justice. Uh, Perhaps the name conveyed justice of the people. Perhaps they thought uh, that they were living according to the law. Paul knew, by the way, of this church in uh, Colossians chapter 2 while he was under house arrest. Uh, He refers to them in verse 1. Begin with me now in our text. These things says the amen. Uh, Amen is your uh, Greek term here from the Hebrew aman, which means firm, true, or unchangeable. Uh, This title is only used here as a personal name for Jesus. Only here. Uh, it shows that he will fulfill his promises because he is firm, he is true, and he is unchangeable. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 20, Paul writes, For all the promises of God in him, in Christ, are yes. And in him, here's our her term, amen to the glory of God through us. Jesus truly is the great amen. He is the one that is true, he is unchangeable, and the one that we can trust, and it's fascinating that one of his names here is amen. He's also described as the faithful and true witness. This aligns back with chapter one in verse five where Jesus is called the faithful witness. Witness, He's reliable when it comes even to the divine revelation given to us. By the way, the character of Christ is in stark contrast to that of the Laodiceans. See, they were not sincere. They were not faithful. They were not true witnesses. Furthermore, Jesus declares... I am the beginning of the creation of God. Could it be that Jesus self-describes as the eternal one and the one who creates everything because the Laodiceans had diminished his deity? Uh, that would not be the first time this has happened with the church. Uh, turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter. One, As Paul addresses the Church of Colossae, they seem to have some of the same issues that the Laodiceans experience. And I want to just draw your attention to a, a very important passage that clearly shows the deity of Jesus Christ. Christ, and as you're turning to Colossians chapter one, uh, we'll look at verses fifteen through twenty, and we'll see seven things that describes Jesus Christ, how he truly is God. Begin with me. The first thing that's mentioned in verse fifteen, he is the image of the invisible God. He's the likeness of the true God because he is. God. Number two, He's described as the firstborn over all creation. Jesus, as we will see as we work through this passage, was not the first created being, but rather the one who is eternal. The one who has always existed. And this word firstborn was used of King David. David was the eighth son, by the way. Not the firstborn. Not the first literal uh, son of Jesse. But he was the eighth. It has the idea here in our context of the one who has the right to rule. So he's the firstborn over all creation. And now notice in verses 16-16, through 17, uh, all the way through actually verse 18, that he is the creator of the universe. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. He did not self-create, he's always existed. That's the point of the passage. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities and powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. See, he is eternally God, and in him all things consist. He continues to control the universe, that it just doesn't spin out of control. He's the master of the universe. Notice in verse 18, that he is also here the head of the body, the church. Uh, This is uh, number four. Jesus Christ is the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Who is the beginning? And then here as well, the firstborn. This is number five, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus not only died because there are others who had died and came back to life like Lazarus, but Jesus conquered death permanently. He's the firstborn from the dead that in all things he may have the preeminence. He's number one in everything, Notice number six, down in verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Jesus is fully man, but he's also fully God. Over in chapter two and verse nine, it says, for in him, see, in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He came to show us the nature of God being fully man And fully God. He's also the one who gives reconciliation. Down in verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. Christ came the eternal God. To bring mankind back into a right relationship with with the Father. This is who he is. And as you're coming back with me to Revelation chapter three, let's ponder that he is the faithful and true witness. He's the beginning of the creation of God. And I, I want to point out here when it says he's the beginning, it's not in the passive form as the Arians, the precursors to the Jehovah Witnesses believe. Uh, Jesus was not the first created being. The text is showing that it is Jesus who created all things. He is the one, as we see in Revelation 22, 13, that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was here before creation came in existence, and he'll be here after the heavens and the earth are torched. That's who he is. He is in perfect harmony with the Father. That is why in John 10 and verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Now, as you're coming down to verse 15, we're going to see for the seventh time, said to each of the churches, I know your works. Why? He's eternally God. But I'd like to also point out that this is the one church where there is no commendation. In other words, Jesus has nothing good to say about this church. So when he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. Now traditionally, in the way I was originally taught, this passage is that you have three classifications of Believers. Let me read to you a quote by John Walverd. It is obvious that in this portion of Scripture, Christ is referring to three different spiritual states, which may be enumerated respectively as the state of coldness, a state of warmth or fervor, and a state of lukewarmness. So, Walverd taught and believed, as many do, even today, that you have three categories. You have those that are on fire for the Lord, those that are spiritually indifferent, lukewarm, and then those that are cold. But I want you to observe the context. Look at the second half of verse 15 and Jesus' words. Let's see if three classifications fit what Jesus is teaching. He says, I could wish you were cold or hot. In our context, both cold and hot are good. You had locally Hierapolis, six or seven miles away, and they had hot springs there. There was medicinal or medical benefits from those hot springs. And then you also had a neighboring Colisee The cold water that would bring refreshment. The idea is that both hot and cold are good. But what happened from Hierapolis, again, six or seven miles away from Laodicea, hot water was pumped in. But what happened by the time it made that long trek, it became lukewarm. The people could truly relate to the illustration that our Lord is given. So in verse 16, Jesus says, because you are lukewarm, he is telling them that they are spiritually indifferent and neither cold or hot. See, both cold and hot in our context are good. He is saying to them there are not three categories, but two And he's placing the Laodiceans in a category of being spiritually lethargic, being spiritually indifferent. They don't care about the things of the Lord because they are independent individuals. That is what is being taught by the Lord Jesus Christ here. Having said that, let me toss some questions to you that could expose perhaps your Spiritual indifference. Let me walk you through these. Do you daily anticipate meeting with God by Bible study and prayer? I mean, when you wake up each day, are you craving the word of God? Are you longing to talk to him in prayer? Second question. Do you anticipate worshiping God weekly at church? Or is it an option? Uh, John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. We call that from Revelation 1.10, which became the title for Sunday. Sunday was a day that the church, the early church assembled to worship. They had communion on that day, Acts chapter 20 and verse uh, 7. They also took up the offering on that day. That's 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. But it was a day that the church came to celebrate that Christ conquered death. Is that just an option for you? That you're not excited to be in the house of God? Remember what the psalmist says? I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of God. Well, in a New Testament context, we come as the church and we should have great anticipation as we do. Uh, Also, do you ask God to give you opportunities to witness for him? As you go through your day, whether at work or speaking to neighbors or going to a restaurant or going over to the bank, are you always asking the Lord, give me an opportunity to tell someone about you? Also, do you exhibit a spirit-filled or controlled life? Ephesians five eighteen through 21 talks about the true believer that is spirit-filled. And that individual has joy, see, because they're always singing a song. They have thankfulness. They're giving thanks to God for everything. But they also are submissive, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Is that you? Are you a spirit-controlled believer that exhibits those three things? Then also, do you delight? Do you delight in keeping God's and Jesus' commands? First John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not heavy. We're, we're delighted to do that. From a Psalm 40 quoted over in the book of Hebrews, Jesus delighted to do the will of God and we should be the same way. Do you just hear God's word but don't practice it? That's hypocrisy. James says we need to be both hearers and doers of the word. Moreover, you have a critical spirit. You are always looking for an occasion to rail on a brother or sister in Christ. Then also, do you spiritually approve all things to see if you can partake in those things? 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, He that is spiritual judges or appraises all things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. I'm asking you to let those questions sink down into your minds and ask yourselves whether you are spiritually indifferent or not. Because if you are, what Jesus said to those saints in the first century, he could say to you today, I will spew you out of my mouth. And it's not the sunny delight that's making the Lord Jesus sick. It's the lives of the believers. And the word spew here means to vomit. To vomit. Perhaps if a child gets sick, you call for assistance. What do I do if my child has swallowed poison? And they would give you an emetic. An emetic is a way to cause vomiting. So they get everything out of that stomach of that child. Jesus says concerning these saints, you make me vomit. You make me sick. You are my emetic. Uh, I don't enjoy getting sick, as I'm sure you don't. But the least way I like to get sick is when I'm going to vomit. I'll do whatever possible not to be sick in that regard. I think our Lord Jesus took the strongest of terms to show how displeased he is with this congregation that was indifferent to him. I want you to observe too, down in verse 17, that their self-appraisal is at odds with their true condition. Because you say. Do you notice those words there? Because you say. And people Believe that if they say something, it's just true. Well, it's not. Because the works need to match the words. Because you say, I am rich. They confused riches for spirituality. Their equation was gain equals godliness. Many Old Testament Jews thought the same thing. People believe the same today. That if you are wealthy then it must mean you are godly. They not only said, I'm rich, I have become wealthy. They are boasting of their wealth because of their self-effort. Two questions that Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 4-7 penetrate the callous spirit of these believers. Paul would ask, what do you have that you did not receive? I love that question. Everything we have really comes from God, whether it's spiritual gifts, whether it's food on the table, because he's the one who has enabled us to have those spiritual gifts or to be able to go out to work. He's given us the health to do those things. It all comes from him. Then he goes on to say, now if indeed you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? (laughs) It all comes from God, and we need to thank him For his great provision. They had become wealthy. The church was materially wealthy. But yet spiritually bankrupt. The church of Smyrna was materially poor. But spiritually rich. Listen to Revelation 2 and verse 9. Jesus says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty but you are rich. Although they did not have the, the means of this world, they still walked and understood how blessed they were through Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. They go on to say, we have need of nothing. <laughs> they then need anything. Remember back with the earthquake? Approximately AD 60 Government comes in and says, we'll help you rebuild. They said, no, thank you, we'll do it ourselves. They were just independent spirits. And sadly, they carried that disposition to their church. That was their mindset. We don't need anything. We have it all. Jesus then goes on and says, and do you not know that you are wretched? You are is emphatic in the Greek. It's su a you You are wretched. The idea of wretched is a compound word which means to endure a callous. It came to mean afflicted. Afflicted. Uh, Paul uses it over in Romans 7, verse 24, about himself being a, a wretched. Man, The idea here is these individuals were so callous to God. They didn't even understand that they were wretched from how God perceived them. Moreover, Jesus says they're miserable. The idea is probably a combination of misery and pitiableness. Uh, the word is used here in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. There it's in... The context, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, we are, of all men, the most pitiable. Imagine what Paul and the apostles suffered for Christ, and if he did not conquer death, they were to be pitied. Jesus says you're not only miserable, but you're poor. You're spiritually bankrupt. Moreover, you're blind. They need to use the tablet for their eye salve. And not only that, but they're naked. They needed to take their own famous wool garment and cover up. And now the advice of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Charles Ryrie writes, the exhortation is for the church defined in Christ, true riches. Because it's Jesus who makes them rich. Would you turn with me please to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6 pertaining to the church of Ephesus, a church that started out walking with the Lord, they loved the saints, that's Ephesians 1:15, which means that they were loving God, but over the course of time materialism crept into this church, and I want you to see what Paul writes to Timothy concerning that congregation. 1 Timothy 6, coming down to verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. The Laodiceans should have been more consumed with taking their vast riches and using them for God's glory. It was uh, Billy Sunday, the professional baseball player turned evangelist who said, the fellow that has no money is poor. The fellow that has nothing but money is poorer still. Continue with me back in Revelation 3 on Jesus' assessment of these saints. He's giving him advice now that they need white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. John Walford writes, they were naked of spiritual clothing. The righteousness was, comes from God, even though they were clothed with rich garments of silk, and wool, They needed a covering of Christ, so sort to of speak, here. He goes on to say, Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. This is a spiritual wake-up call. That although they thought they were discerning and wise, that they understood the mind of God, they missed out on all those things, and spiritually they were obtuse. But now we see in verse 19 that this is a group, though, still of saints. They're believers. Uh, some have tried to say uh, that we are in the period of the Laodiceans. In other words, they start with the church of Ephesus and they say, well, this was the first period of church history and they work through it. I always ask this question. What does that do for the imminent return of Christ? If Paul believed Christ could come back in his day and John believed it, then how can you have these stages of history according to these seven churches that just doesn't fit what you have here is Jesus showing that these were believers because in verse 19 he says as many as I love I rebuke and chasten those first century saints were being corrected by the Lord Jesus because they were his own And he loved them. They had come to the faith and needed to repent of their spiritual indifference. Consider uh, with me Hebrews 12 in verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. These are saints. These are believers who got off the beaten path. They were individuals and perhaps you have individuals like that in this century and a century before and a century before that. You have always had indifferent believers. They're not confined to one period of time. And Jesus corrects all of them. And he says, therefore, be zealous and repent. The word zealous is a present imperative. Keep on being zealous. The idea is to seethe, to bubble up, to boil, to have a fervency. Remember like Apollos in Acts 18? He was fervent in the things of the Lord. We need to be the same way. And for these individuals, if you will, as as Jesus is flying over them in a helicopter, looking down, seeing their whole picture, if you will, the aorist tense is used here, and the command is given repent repent change your mind change your direction stop being self-sufficient so our first point derived from verses 14 through 19 repent of self-sufficiency and zealously seek jesus let me say this again it's very important repent of self-sufficiency And zealously seek Jesus. They needed to move away from their independent spirit. And become pursuers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now for our second point. Invite Jesus to fellowship with you. Invite Jesus to fellowship with you. How many times have we seen gospel tracts and Revelation 3.20 given? as an invitation for the unsaved to come to Christ, that doesn't fit our context. These are believers. We see that from verse 19, that they are being corrected for their spiritual indifference. And then Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. See, he's waiting for them to repent of their self-sufficiency and invite him to once again govern their lives. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. That's the invitation. That's the invitation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question. What is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. These individuals found their satisfaction in materialism. What they had, they were self sufficient. They were arrogant. They had moved away from that prayer give us a stay, our daily bread. They could refuse Rome from rebuilding their city, but could they really refuse the Lord Jesus Christ? Who was standing at the door saying, open up to me. I want to have fellowship with you. I want to be your true riches. I want to be your all and all. And then the promise. You see, there's a benefit to walking with Christ. Of leading a life of dependence. Because down in verse 21, to him who overcomes. And let me say this, and I've said it with each of the churches. Churches. The overcomer, according to 1 John 5, 4 and 5, pertains to the believer. All believers are overcomers. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. There is a promise here to ruling and reigning with Christ in the future, during the millennial kingdom, to the churches that are faithful, to those individuals who comprise the church. They are going to be rewarded with a greater share of ruling and reigning with Christ in his kingdom. Let's review for just a moment. Uh, Turn back to Revelation chapter 2. Let your eyes come down to verse 26. This is to the church of Thyatira. Revelation 2.26, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. To him I will give power over the nations. See, that's when Christ sets up his kingdom. When he comes back at the second coming, Revelation 19, to establish his throne. He shall rule them with the rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel. As I have also received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star to that church, which is given to all churches, to the overcomer, who stays faithful to the Lord, demonstrating that they're truly born again, there will be a share in that future kingdom. Then over in chapter three, come on down to verse eight. To the church of Philadelphia in eight and nine, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, speaking in the context here of the kingdom, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. See, entrance to the kingdom And the unbelievers bowing at the feet of the Lord, acknowledging that he is God as we will serve him in that thousand-year kingdom. And again, don't forget this. What is given to one church pertains to all. Down in verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. With that, let me give you point number three. Focus upon your future rule with Jesus. That's verses 21 and 22. Focus upon your future rule with Jesus. Came upon this story. If any athlete was known for focus, it was Michael Jordan. In Jordan's book, Driven from Within, Fred Whitfield... President and Chief Operating Officer of the NBA Charlotte Bobcats basketball team, tells a fascinating story about something Jordan did while getting ready to go out one evening. When Jordan asked if he could borrow a jacket from Whitfield, he found that Whitfield's closet was filled with both Nike and Puma products. The Nike outfits had been given to Whitfield because of his relationship with Jordan who had a lucrative contract with the company. The Puma outfits had been given to Whitfield because of his relationship with ex-basketball player and Puma representative Ralph Sampson. Whitfield recalls that Jordan walked into the living room, laid all the Puma gear on the floor, and went into the kitchen to grab a butcher knife. When Jordan returned to the living room, he proceeded to cut all of the Puma clothes Shreds. He then picked up the scraps and carried everything to the dumpster. Once Jordan came back inside, he turned to Fred and said, Don't ever let me see you in anything other than Nike. You can't ride the fence. To these believers, they were riding the fence. They knew Jesus Christ, but were choosing to be independent spirits. To believe that their wealth was enough. That God had blessed them since they had affluence. So what have we learned today? Number one, repent of self-sufficiency and zealously seek Jesus. That's my prayer for all of us. Number two, invite Jesus to fellowship with you move away from your independent spirit start to pursue jesus christ he's standing at the door he's knocking say come on in i want to have a great relationship with you take over my life and in number three focus upon your future rule with jesus and in closing here i'd like to make a a theological comparison. What is true of Jesus Christ, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Is also true of the Holy Spirit, since the Holy Spirit is eternally God. And in our first book of the Bible, called Genesis, in Genesis 6-3, we have a statement made about the Spirit, but the context of the passage is that the world is reprobate, they're wicked. Their thoughts and imaginations were only evil continually. And God was getting ready to judge the earth with a global flood. And in Genesis 6-3, Moses pens, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. The term strive, uh, from the Hebrew deen, means to judge, contend, plead. See, at the time, just before the flood, you had Enoch prophesy. Remember, he was the one who walked with God and was not for he took him. Jude tells us that he was a prophet. And then 2 Peter talks about Noah being a preacher of righteousness, that's 2 Peter chapter 2. And for the 120-year period of time that he built the ark, he was preaching to the people to repent. The Spirit of God, was working with that generation to convict them. He was striving with them, but there was a limited period of time, 120 years, until the floods would come and it would be too late. And what have we seen to each of the seven churches? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, see, same Holy Spirit, says to the churches. We need to repent if we have an independent spirit we need to zealously seek jesus we need to if you will boil for christ in our fervor let him come in into our lives in the sense of ruling our lives and finding our utter dependency upon him see the spirit is working today Jesus says in John chapter 3, and verse 8, the wind blows. He's using an analogy to spirit there where it wills. And see, Jesus was working with these churches. And he was desirous to take these seven churches and to have Christ formed in each and every one. And they became a pattern for what all churches would be. As you look at churches today and what's been going on for 2,000 years, there are great lessons that are learned From these seven, if you will, prototypes. And we need to derive wisdom because what the Spirit said back then, He's still saying to us today. I I pray for us that we would make the church of Jesus Christ a priority in our lives. That it would be the Lord who is walking in the midst of the church, evaluating us with His clipboard in hand, and He would be pleased pleased with us, to give us a glowing review because we're not self-sufficient. We have a zeal for Christ. We delight to fellowship with him. And we are looking forward to a time when we can rule with him in a millennial kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you, my Father. The church of Jesus Christ is ever so important. That even the gates of Hades, even Jesus' own death, couldn't prevent the church from being built. And this has been your plan for 2,000 years now. You've been building your church. And it's important to you. And it therefore needs to be important to us. Father, we want to carry out your work until your son comes. We want to be zealous. We don't want to be independent We want to be dependent upon the living God. We want to hear the voice of the Spirit who spoke to those churches. And we want to learn lessons so that we could be pleasing to you in every which way. And Lord, that as we have walked with you and as we have served you and as we have kept you as a priority, we can anticipate that future rule with your Son in His kingdom Move us in that direction, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.